Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today's topic is called Becoming Unstuck, Deciphering the Deeper Patterns. I'll repeat that, Becoming Unstuck, Deciphering the Deeper Patterns. While today's subject is not a conventional choice for HealthScape, there are a good deal of lessons that can be learned from this discussion by those who have chronic diseases and especially chronic pain, as they know better than most all about feeling stuck. What would it be like if one brought one's full consciousness and awareness to the table when making decisions? Do we perhaps sometimes have to break a fixed pattern of behavior or thinking in order to solve a challenging problem? And what does it mean to be stuck and arrested in a particular conundrum? Well, the jury is already out on these subjects with regard to chronic pain and disease, as we are constantly required to do things that are counterintuitive to us, such as exercise a body part that is constantly painful when we feel we shouldn't have to, and socialize when we least, feeling, we least feel like doing it, such as when we are lonely, but kind of reticent to do anything about it. We also know that we can totally change unhelpful thinking patterns by reframing situations and questions that in itself can lighten the stress load, if not actually help resolve the issue in question. We call this kind of psychotherapy CBT, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and we have referred to it many times on this program. The lesson here is that a seemingly intractable problem may more easily be resolved by the ways we present it to others, but even more importantly, by the way we approach it ourselves. The disclaimer here is that none of this discussion today should be viewed as therapy, much less as replacement therapy by any particular listener. You have your family physician who best knows your medical history. However, the insights presented remain important as it shows us that we can change certain things when we feel stuck. And this in itself can increase motivation by kindling hope. Our guest today is Dr. Steven Feinberg, clinical psychologist and author. Welcome to HealthScape, Stephen. Hi, Trevor, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I'll just give a quick brief bio. Um, he is a leading authority on on applying neurostrategy, that's not neuroscience. Um, the brackets is the in brackets brains, games, and foes to game-changing leadership with companies that include Apple, Visa, Google, generating over 250 million of economic gain. Um, he's been involved in eight out of ten high-performing teams, nine out of 10 leaders more, making them more impactful, influential, and powerful. He's author of two international bestsellers. The Advantage Makers are now Do What Others Say Cannot Be Done or Can't Be Done. Play the Meta Game. 
is adjunct, fac on adjunct faculty at University of San Francisco for almost 30 years at the School of Business and Management. He holds two graduate degrees, a master's in social work and a master of, uh, the, the, that's the master of science degree and a PhD. Stephen is in the top 1% of executive coaches in the country. Uh, Spencer Clark, this is according to Spencer Clark, Chief Learning Officer at Cadence. Stephen's current focus in, is on the game of deeper patterns, uh, what he calls the meta game. He currently fields a study on neurostrategy called Brains, Gains, and Foes. So, Stephen, your new book, Do What Others Say Can't Be Done, Play the Meta Game. In two or three sentences, what was your purpose in writing this book? Second part of that question, and what is your essential message? So let me jump right in and say, because you and I... <laughs> can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Well, because you and I are, are yearning for something deeper in the midst of all this chaos and turmoil and uncertainty that we're facing, I wanted to ask a deeper question that would elevate our thinking, that would accelerate our influence and would create meaningful game-changing conversations. So you say, I, I believe that forward-thinking people, leaders, entrepreneurs deserve to create the exceptional uh, when uncertainty strikes and to experience triumph when they are creating the exceptional. So the, the best of the best, I, I interviewed over 50 plus world-class leaders, entrepreneurs, creators. Uh, and what I found is that they do um, three things that you, can, that you can also do when you set up your brain and mind to, to, to do these three things. Number one is they see options that others don't. Number two is they defy expectations that doing what others say can't be done. And number three, they're persuading others and persuading themselves to create the exceptional. All these three things, seeing options that others don't, defying expectations and persuading other people and themselves to create the exceptional, all require skills. And it matters to, to uh, people, to leaders, to individuals, because they are not often taught these specific skills or made available easily, yet they determine who the winners and losers are, who the resilient are from the, those who are stuck, and who the hopeful are compared to those who are stressed out. So when you know how to do these things, I refer to these folks, they are first adapters. And fortune favors first adapters. And the book is about how to be, be a first adapter and change the game. So, Stephen, is this in any potential field or is it limited mainly to sort of entrepreneurial business, creative pursuits? Um, well, I find it, if you have a brain, it, it, it includes you. You see, because our brains are the, the function of the brain is to resolve uncertainty. And the way you go about resolving that uncertainty is the assumptions you have about the way things are, determines the outcomes, determines your experience, determines how you deal with pain, how you deal with frustration, how you deal with threats. 
in in your in your situation, whether or not those threats are internal, biological, or external, in which business folks may find themselves, and professionals, you know how they deal with stress and so on. Because no matter what our profession or activity or interest, I mean, problem saving, uh, problem solving involves very much the same type of processes. I mean, obviously the field's different, the playing field's different, but the approaches and what is sound and what is not sound, what, it, what works and does not work, there are constants along the way. I can see that. Now, the brain, of course, is many things. Um, you highlight the... Um, uncertainty resolution aspect it's also a major predictor and i suspect uh, you know enables us to predict you know that kind of saber-toothed tiger is not uh, friendly you know that uh, kind of uh, thing but do you feel that that's just a given it's not a separate thing encompassed by the central uh, processing uh, method that you are looking well, let, let me let me put a context around this. So, in any situation of uncertainty or or ad, uh, adversity, there is the seen and there is the hidden. There are patterns that are seen and patterns that are hidden. Both matter, and our brains are patterning machines that predict. Right, right, and they, these patterning ability analyze situation and connect the dots. The biological purpose of patterns is to make sense of the world. So we have a sense-making guidance system that is always trying to navigate the uncertainty to create what's meaningful in our lives. The, and the people that I study, the first adapters, find novel, meaningful, and predictive ways to change the games that matter to them. So when uncertainty threatens, um, most people think that winning or dealing with it, it's problem solving, uh, takes willpower alone, or takes motivation alone, or takes courage alone. But alongside, uh, though, there's another game going on, and it's hidden from most with deeper rules, deeper insights, and players who connect deeper dots. They, they, these players, these powerful adapters, these first adapters. And so why do I use the term adaptability? And I think you and the folks listening can uh, individually relate to this, this notion of adaptability in, in your field and in the field of, and in the issues that concern people, whether, whatever the broad spectrum that might be, is in Chinese medicine, health, is a function of adaptability. And the adaptability is the absence of dis-ease. You know, I think they break it up in, in a uh, language way, it's dis-ease, right? So there's more ease, there's adaptability. And adaptability is an indication of health. And so it's the ability to respond to the internal stressors and an ability to respond to the external stressors. So what we want is people who are adaptable to the uncertainty, to the difficulties, to the threats that they encounter. And so from that perspective, we're looking at what are the patterns 
and are your patterns adaptable at, at a high level, at a deeper, higher, more significant order of functioning? Um, or are they operating in a more reactive way? So the, the tendency is for people to just accept the givens, what we were told this is the here you connect the dots but what we're looking at is how can you connect the deeper dots or, or even recognize that there are something deeper i mean it's interesting that fractals weren't known too long ago we, we didn't know because we didn't look closely enough at repeating patterns and that applies as well to chaos theory apparently um so can you give us an example of a, the, the simplest example you can think of of a deeper pattern um, let, let, let me add a little bit to the notion of adaptability and address this concern about patterns. Um, the, Dr. Porges, who's written books about the vagal nerve and the vagal, vagus nervous system, um, talks about the tendency of how the vagus nerve is to deal with threatens, threats. So the pattern, what's your pattern in relationship to a threat? And how do you deal with it? Do you deal with it well? There's a pattern in that. You, are you strong in relationship to it? Are you, does it overcome you? Do you, are you reactive to it? Do you stay within the status quo and accept the givens? Do you play to win and defeat it? Do you play to play, which is what? first adapters are doing, they're playing to play as well as playing to win because in the brain, the brain likes to play and they're playing to play. So one of the, th one of the examples of Vagel's terms is in terms of dealing with threats. If you have a, if stress controls you, if the threats control you, if you get reactive, then you have a weak, what's called weak vagal tone. If you have, if when you encounter stress, uncertainty, chaos, turmoil, and you relate to handle it well, then you are have strong vagal tone. So my, my favorite example of strong favorite tone is because I'm a basketball fanatic is watching Steph Curry, the basketball uh, three point champion, shooting champion for the Golden State Warriors. And he's able to hit shots under enormous stress and make the shot, the game-winning shot over and over. He has, and he'll come to the line and he'll stand, you know, when he gets fouled in basketball, if you get fouled, take a foul shot, under stress, tens of thousands of people, millions of people on TV watching you, and he'll make the shot over 90% over of the time. He has great vagal tone. And he does exercises that help his vagal tone. It's, you know, a lot of people think we don't have any control over these kinds of things. And in fact, more and more, as you say, there are discoveries that we have um, various levels of impact that we can just without breathing. You know, just we can prove it to ourselves. I mean, there's certain degrees uh, where it reaches, but most people uh, take themselves out of the game. It's like I used to tell the kids when I was coaching them, if they got upset, if they missed a shot, don't take yourself out of the game. Keep shooting and discover and learn what you have to do and, and enjoy and have fun. You're, you're playing to play. Um, what you said about the vagal, vagus nerves and not having control, 
you know, I, I, I had a previous guest who also made it very clear that the autonomic nervous system itself, um, although it's autonomic, it is by no means automatic. We can, we can learn to control it better. Um, so, so yes, that, that resonates very loudly. Well, the, you know, the, you know, for people who have chronic pain, it, it sometimes makes them feel like, hey, you're just saying it's in my head. You know, and I want to be clear, it's not just in your head, it's biological. There are real pains. There's I I have chronic pain myself for many years. It's not make-believe, it's there. It's the question is how do you relate to it? Is that's where you have the capacity for change, the capacity for adaptability. And I want to make clear that adaptability does not mean adjust adjusting to it, adjusting to the status quo. Adaptability means you're playing at a higher level. You're doing something different. You're, you're transforming the game, if you will, in my lexicon. Okay, so in a case like the basketball player, what is, is he taking in information that the untrained eye even at that high level of other players is not taking into or is it a kind of flow state As yeah well, he he's clearly mastered you know it takes skill it, it's not like someone walks on the the court and can do what he can do it takes an he's he spends an enormous number of hours practicing and getting uh procedural memory what we call muscle memory Right. He's doing a lot of work and he's an extraordinary human being as well and willing to do that. Right. So willing to to take the action that's going to transform. Literally, he transformed the game of basketball in his shooting. He's considered the greatest basketball shooter of all time. And. Um, while he does come from a certain pedigree of basketball players, his dad was a player, his brother's a player in the NBA, but they, so they know the field of play really well. Well, in any area, you can learn the, the field of play really well to, and uh, accomplish it and do it. And there's lots of uh, different research around certain number of hours leads to a certain degree of competency. Um, but, but it requires, and you know, this. There's some controversy around, you know, the so-called 10,000 hours and whether or not people can do it a lot faster. But, but ultimately, you want to practice doing the right thing, right? You can practice, you know, I can practice shooting a thousand times, but if I'm doing it wrong, it's not going to be helpful. I know exactly what not to do. In that way, it's helpful. Right. So it has parallels with being in the flow because they also have to put in a lot of hours and the difference there or from normal behavior is that they intuitively do the right thing, even under pressure. It's a feel and it's not fully conscious, it appears. It's less than fully conscious. It's, I've repeated this so much time, I'm kind of on automatic path with my understanding of that. But certainly it's also very, very interesting. Now you say that the people who are arrested by a problem are apparently stuck um, because they should very often do exactly the opposite of what they intuitively feel they should do. That is to change the game, which you go on to say is by changing the frame, you change the game. 
Can you illustrate that, please? So it's a we as we grow up, we're provided with two uh, moral imperatives, and one of those imperatives is. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? Persevere, right? Don't be a quitter. And none of us want to be a quitter. Uh, it's really, we, we feel uh, an aversion to it. So if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, persevere. Well, there's another moral imperative that we're grown up with, that we grow up with is if you continue to do what you've always done, expecting a different response, that's called and everyone knows the answer, insanity. So don't be nuts in my language in New York City. Right? So don't be a quitter and don't be nuts. Well, what happens when those two moral imperatives encounter each other in our brain, in our mind, and how we approach things? You know, don't be a quitter, don't be nuts. Do more of the same harder. Um, stop the insanity, but how? So. There are, there's a tendency to, when, when things go wrong, you want to use your common sense to deal with it. If a, if a flat tire, you get a flat tire, you need to fix it, get, get it back to homeostasis, get it back to where it was. And so what I call that first order change. It's just getting it back to where it was. But what happens if you keep running over a, a field that has, um, nails in it over and over again. It gets pretty expensive and pretty tiresome to keep changing the flat tire. So now you have to engage, create a second order change, a higher order change where you have a puncture proof tire. Um, that's in the realm of the physical world. But in, in our um, personal lives, we can have uh, certain situations in which we, um, the pattern uh, is such that we may think of ourselves as um, having, like with a teenager, <laughs> you know, when, when parents and teenagers, when they deal with each other, you often see this pattern. The pattern is the parents trying to provide guidance, mm -hmm. the teenagers per perceiving it as a lecture. <laughs> the more, the more the parent uh, lectures, the less the teenager listens, the less the teenager wow. listens without being kind of sulking or irritated, the more the parent lectures. This is a pattern, a game without end. It just will continue through time. Make sense? Yeah. And so how the attempted solution so where this comes in terms of patterns is the attempted solution by the parent who was trying to provide guide. They care about their kid. Well, that's a good thing. And you, you know, like people and say, so you don't want me to tell them anything? You want me to just leave them? That that's not what the kid is needing or wanting or hoping for. Um, but the tendency is to relate to that as if you're either the choice is either. Uh, not care and leave the scene or push harder. And the attempted solution of push harder actually maintains the game. It's that persistence tendency. It's doing something that's not going to work, expecting it to be different, but you're trying to persevere. So you're stuck. So what should you do instead? 
And the magic is by, by realizing that instead of lecturing, maybe you ask them a question. Instead of lecturing, maybe you're just, you just take, you know, they ask you to come take them somewhere, drive them somewhere. You go, sure. You don't go into a three, you don't go into a, um, a detective, you know, like, who are you going with? Why are you doing it? When are you going to be back? You know, because then it's in, you know, you're and you're a detective instead of a parent. Right? And they they react against that. And so what you want to do is find a way what it's um I refer to as 180 degrees, but it's actually anything that's slightly different than the pattern that you're in, uh, engaged in. And so you have to look at what's the game that you're in. There's three things, three ways of breaking this pattern. One is, the, the first thing is detect that there's a game going on and a, a game or a story of some sort, an interaction. I say the road to hell is paved with mishandled interactions, right? So there's this interaction going on. There's a game that's going on. Second is then you want to break the pattern. You don't want to keep playing, doing what you've always done because you get the same response. And the third is you want to frame the future. You want to do it differently. You want to have it change the frame, change the game. Right. Okay, that makes sense. In your experience, is there always a way out or sometimes not? Actually, um, uh, Stephen, I see that um, it's time for a commercial break. Yeah, if sure. To that, please. Um, this is Dr. Trevor Campbell, your host on Healthscape, speaking with Dr. Stephen Feinberg about his book. Um, and um, we will be back shortly. Please don't go away. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems medications, injection therapy, and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain on Amazon, and for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. Hello, you're listening to Healthscape uh, with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, interviewing Dr. Stephen Feinberg. So Stephen, where we left off, I, I mentioned, um, is, is there always a way of finding a suitable, uh, deeper pattern that rescues one from this trap situation? Or in your experience, are there cases where you know, there simply may not be a deeper pattern that is usable or accessible. Yeah, so I refer to these situations. This is a, a, a great question because everyone encounters a situation that they believe 
is unsolvable, right? Um, uh, and yet, all our the, the our futures, our lives, what we create is by dealing with what at first seems insurmountable. You know, the the civilization advances by finding solutions to things that people didn't think were possible. So the another way, an, an analogy, another analogy is what happens when I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Um, and usually, what's going on is there is a rule in your head that the rule in the head has to do with an assumption about perfection, that somehow you're trying to come up with a perfect solution, that no matter what I do, I'm the only one who can do this, uh, that no one else, and you don't realize that you've set it up to be the only one that could do it there, right? There's a lot of, I've taught work with lots of execs where they end up, well, I'm the only one who can do this, so I have to stay late at night, right? And, and while that's true, it's like if you step back and you go, well, how did you get to, how did you set the, that up? Because the, there's a rule in your head. And what we're trying to do is look at how to um, examine that rule in your head to think of a second order changes, the change the thermostat, if you will, right? If the thermostat is first order, it's just going on and off. But the ability to change the thermostat to a temperature to do something hotter or colder or, or set a timer on it is where second order thinking, second order abilities come in. Let me let me give you an example that I had a um, an executive and he um, was dealing with uh, big issues in the company. It was a billion dollar company. And he go to he was a director. Uh, he's very skilled, very knowledgeable. Most of the people I deal with are very competent people. Very, you know, the people think that pe people are, there's something wrong with them, but there's actually great problem solvers. But they get stuck by, because of their skill, they don't find another way around it. They they use what they know how to do, what got them there. And um, this particular um, engineer, who was an engineer, um, he would start off, his conversations with the executives, he'd bring an issue and go, well, the problem is this that's happening. And mm -hmm. then a few minutes later, he would keep talking. He said, and so the problem is this. And then another sentence or two, and the problem is this. And as I listened to him describe his situation, I thought, how is he interacting with these executives. Well, interestingly enough, the his boss, the uh, vice president, executive vice president, wanted to give him a promotion, wanted to make him a vice president because he was such a good technical problem solver. But he was a terrible at solving these interactional problems. <laughs> and he, he'd be the first to admit it, you know? And he said, well, and, and his response would be, so the problem is, X, Y, and Z. And I said, do you realize that you, you keep saying the problem is? Yes. And he said, well, it is. I said, yeah. So how do you think they think, the executives think of you? What do you think they think of you? Well, right. they think I'm trying to solve the problem. And I said, that's not how they think of you. They think you're a problem maker. You bring them problems all the time. You, you, you make them feel like they're not solving the problems. Like they're they're the ones. If they were only better decision makers, if they allocated the right resources here, if they would have 
thought into the future more. They, if they would have listened to you, you know, a year ago, if they would, whatever it is, none of that was wrong. But the way he interacted was he started off with the problem is. And so his boss wanted, again, remember, his boss wanted to give him a um, an advance, wanted to promote him to vice president. They wanted to fire him. <laughs> it was just, the they, he wasn't reading the game board. He wasn't reading the field to play at all. And he was stressing himself, stressing everyone else out. And so they wanted to get rid of him. So I, so what he needed was his attempted solution to push on the problem was actually the was actually the issue at hand, what needed to be addressed. That how he approached it, he needed to approach it in a different way. And to his credit, he was really smart. He went, "Oh my goodness, I I had no idea. I just I just thought I was being logical and reasonable. And in fact, he was he was making it worse for himself, and he could never see it." And so he ended up, we ended up giving some language where he would start off with saying, hey, this is, we're working really hard. Everyone's doing what they can. And here's the things that I think would move this forward. Can we uh, address how to move this forward? Right. It sounds simple, right? But when you're in the middle of it, you don't even realize you're doing it. You're stuck inside that frame and you don't check, you don't test the rule in your brain. You don't test that rule. Is that, is that a uh, worthwhile insight? Yes, no, it is very worthwhile because it underlies a few things, the importance of language and the importance of knowing where you are. Like, I mean, in the corporate world, you're in a very rigid structure, vertical organization, much like the military or church, where feedback is not really celebrated, shall we say, and even to this day. Um, it's more likely stifled or disregarded or even punished, I suspect, and sometimes. So he, 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 he's bringing them, he's thinking, he's focusing them, but he's actually demotivating them by using the word problem. I mean, how motivated are you to solve anything when it's not a problem, but it's rather a cut cluster of problems, possibly real or imagined. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that it, it's, it's, a, it's a simple Uh, which is one of the reasons I like it so much, a simple example, but it shows you how every day and how banal we handle these things. And there's a person, I I don't want to dump on him, but he he should know better having dealt with people to reach his initial position. But it goes, it just goes along. And so we muddle along. So to become aware of this and and to see what exactly, I mean, they, they say that spirituality is partly the ability to to walk in someone else's shoes, but to intelligence when you're managing people is partly an ability to imagine what they're hearing and the conclusions they may come to. Right. Sorry, I didn't mean to sermonize, but um, that's that's what I see in this, and I've I've seen this in chunks. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, so, and that by, by that ability to step into the other's shoes, be the ability to see the whole game board, right? Mm-hmm. I always, I always say, do you know the game board that your boss, your colleagues, your customer, your, um, your your competitors are playing on? And I asked people that, and the I asked this one lady. I'll give you another example of in a corporate context. There was this lady who was the vice president of quality. 
And she was getting 40% of the time she was asking for strategic initiatives and investment in her strategic initiative. And she was getting rejections 40% of the time. And I listened to how she presented it. And the way she presented it was reasonable, logical. Here's the benefits we get from it. Here's what we should do. Right. It was 40% of the time she was getting no's. And the other people, her other colleagues, were getting yeses more often. And they were men and women. It had nothing to do with her their um, gender. It had nothing to do with the age. It had nothing to do with anything other than how she was presenting it. So she, her very attempted solution was shutting down the yeses inadvertently. And so what she was doing, what she didn't, so uh, to my question earlier is, do you know what the game board is that your, um, that your colleagues or your boss is on? And she said, yes. And I said, I don't think so. And I knew a little bit about the CEO and what he, how he did. And he was a competitive guy, uh, and as most of them are, and skillfully at it. And he was comparing the different alternatives be, that each of his executives came to him, and he wanted to mitigate the risk of what he was uh, mm -hmm. he, he was competing. He was also reducing risks. And interestingly enough, the way the brain works, the brain makes decisions that loss looms larger than gain to the brain. So if I ask people, you know, do, would you, do you take action? based upon what you're going to gain or what you're going to lose. Well, you want to gain something, but in fact, oftentimes you take action because loss looms larger, $100 lost looms larger than $100 gained, uh, and the research that has been done. And in fact, the Nobel Prize uh, was developed by uh, Drs. Tversky and Kahneman, who got the Nobel Prize in economics for their prospect theory right. just about this. And uh, the the this is the application of that i said why don't you instead of providing what he can gain you talk about what the consequences of not doing it here's the cost here's what the consequences if we don't do this now here's what we'll, we'll be playing catch up and we'll never catch our competition but the choice is yours what should we do the, the, as a consequence of merely shifting her language, of yep. changing the pre, the frame, right, right. He Absolutely. he went from forty percent no's to eighty percent of the time yeses, and the CEO said she's so much smarter now, and she deserves a seat at the table. I wanted there at all high stakes issues. Well, let me tell you, uh, Trevor, she wasn't any smarter. She was really smart to begin with. She was really a competent woman. She was quite skilled and a, a delightful person. And what, what she wasn't doing, she was doing exactly the opposite of what she should have been doing inadvertently. So a lot of times people you know, get stuck inadvertently inside these uh, games that they're not even aware of. So she thought she was... Playing. She thought, you know, she knew the game board and she, in fact, did not. Right. You speak about superior leaders getting their teams to look at the problem or a problem through a specific lens. What exactly is the specific lens? Um, I, I mean, I can glean a certain amount from what you've told me already, but how would you say you, you recently be appointed to a position? You understand this theory uh, or this method approach, if you like. 
and the others don't, how do you introduce the lens? They say, you're going to say to them, I want you to use the lens on this problem. And they say, what is the lens? What, what do you tell them? Well, um, so I'll give you a, an example of someone bringing a lens to a situation at one of the, the, the number one company in America. So I was consulting to them. And they, during one of their sessions, they were dealing with um, a, a difficult issue and they were going back and forth and I was facilitating the conversation. And one of the uh, managers in the room said, can't we just compromise? And I looked at them in my less than adequate um, collaborative mode and I said, no. <laughs> and I said, no, and here's why. If you want to create a breakthrough, you need to start with thinking, what could we do? How can we take this and make it what it could be? The lens is one of possibility rather than of probability. The probability was that it was going to be very difficult. But if you start with the tendency to be reactive, to compromise, compromise, to in most corporations, they get things done by compromise. But if you're in a breakthrough session, you can't start there because you can, it's unlikely, unless there are a few people who are breakthrough masters and who are always going to be unlocking the game of patterns to create the exceptional. So, what you want to do is to recognize that there are patterns. The, the big lens is to unlock the game of patterns, what I call the metagame, the game of games. And so what you want to do is to see that there are four different kinds of game boards that you can operate on. And at the, uh, at the first level, what I call diminishing game is, the, uh, is where people are basically reactive and they're struggling. And, you know, there's, it's driven by fear and ignorance. It's controlled by that. It's, unless you get past the fear and ignorance, you're not going to get to the next level game. The game that most people play is where they are reactive. They maintain the status quo. They are hardworking people, but they the game is to do more of the same. Stick, stay with things, stay within the the comfort zone, if you will. Stay within the familiar, doing what what they know. The third level game is where people are performing at a higher level. These are oak, they're performing at a pretty good level and they're playing a better game. They play to win. But there's a fourth level where the game is where you create transformation. And that's the metagame where you're, and this is where the exceptional all-stars operate with. And in order to get from the high performing game to the metagame, you have to be willing to challenge a, a question in their mind the rule in the mind and the rule in the mind typically is is this good this is good enough what i'm doing is good enough right, right? so you have to be willing to question is it good enough and be, because if, if if you stay there you're going to perform okay at a pretty high level but you're not going to be create the exceptional okay and i suppose this lens also means because uh, you, you, you also tend to say that the first step is undoing how you connect the dots, which apparently is how 
uh, how you undo connecting the dots, which is apparently how you affect real change. How you and break how you break the pattern. So what yes, the way the you do that, what you want to you know patterns are can, uh, when you connect the dots, you're patterning, right? And so, but what I'm talking about is connecting the deeper dots, right? Is to find and to undo it is to break the pattern. So and what you, the way talking about some of the examples we've already discussed is. What was the attempted solution? And to ask yourself, how's that working for you? You know, yeah. and if if you if it's not working, doing more of the same is really going to keep you stuck in your situation and going to keep you stressed out in the situation. So the real question is, do you know how to connect the deeper dots in right. terms of your um, finding to get between beyond the um, the rock and a hard place situation. Really, by the way, in that example that I was talking about with the major company, they went on and and, and developed a, a breakthrough solution. And the breakthrough solution is probably something that you walk around with a device in your in your pocket and use. Say no more. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, because normal conventional wisdom, I remember Larry King saying this so many times, if, if something's confusing, in, especially politics and finance, you connect the dots, as you would say, or, or, or you know, you follow the money. Yes. And obviously, these are valuable at times, but they also are limited. There's just one example. Well, you want, you want, so I, I think it's connecting the dots is the right thing to do. What you want to do is connect the deeper dots. Yes. The, yes. the difference that makes a difference is the deeper dots, right? Is to go, what is to ask yourself, you know, a lot of times people are taking they they miss mistakes. The dots that they keep on playing is they take action when they shouldn't, they don't take action when they should, or they take the wrong action. So right. if you begin to look at the patterns, am I taking action yeah. that I shouldn't? Am I pushing like the you're lecturing your kids? Am I not taking action? Maybe I'm not saying something to my wife or to my husband, and that my quietness is causing is that's a pattern. So I should be asking them stuff or just clarifying, or, or am I taking the wrong action? Am I, you know, just saying, just talking about the benefits instead of the cost and the consequences? Any of those things will help lead you to break the pattern, to disrupt the pattern. That's that's keeping you stuck and keeping you stressed. I, I just want to mention something. I I immediately thought of it when I became aware of your work at first, uh, and this is an example not from modern day but from history, which makes it more interesting to me. I, I asked the question: Do we ever learn? But uh, in Peloponnesian War in, in Greece, uh, Greek mainland, they had the Oracle of Apollo, which was sacred to the god Apollo. And there was this temple where some person who was mystic would throw the yarrow stalks or rattle the bones or whatever, and then come up with a solution. And the Athenians had heard that they were about to in, be invaded by a way superior army of Spartans and all their spies and informers that said these people were massing and getting ready. And they were terrified of this because they thought it would destroy the city. And the answer, what they had to do came back as meet them with a wall of wood, which doesn't sound very uh, solid, right? I mean, wood, you fire a lit arrow into it and so on and so forth. So they weren't too happy, obviously. 
until they figured out that if you think beyond outside the box or the deeper dots, that they remembered, oh yeah, we've got a much bigger Navy. So what if we go to them first and strike them uh, it's part of on the coast. I can't even remember, but it was two city states feuding, and, yes. and 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 so they they used their navy to absolutely intimidate and slaughter the other navy, freaking them out for I don't know if it was decades, but certainly a good few years. And the, and and if we just look at a wall of wood, we see a flimsy, useless structure. So what? But if you take it onto boats being placed or sailing end to end almost, coming into a, a, a city with, with a smaller navy, then you see the answer. And I, you know, I've never forgotten that. I must have read that at high school. Mm -hmm. All these decades later, it was just uh, because I think it's, you see, whether you believe in mystical things or not, once you go there, you buy into it, you trigger your brain, you give it a task. I have to now decipher something which I believe to be true, even if it's based on less than truth or whatever. You're still giving your brain that problem-solving question. And, and that's, for me, a very graphic example, apparently true. I, I should have checked up before this. I just didn't get around <laughs> to it. Well, anyway. certainly the... Um, it reveals a certain thing about our brains in yes. the sense, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same is the concern that people have. And you have to think uh, in second order level thinking to shift the game board, right? To right. shift the game board. But, you know, it's, I, I tend to think that patterns are so intriguing and first of all, that our brains want the pattern so much that we will create uh, false notions in order to resolve that uncertainty and make it into a pattern. And oh, yeah. the, the, so that the, the, um, the tendency to buy for bias, the tendency for superstition are all part of the brain's attempt at patterning what the situation is to be able to resolve that uncertainty. And, but at the, at the root, what it's a useful way of thinking about it is that patterns are not a way to change, are not a way to deal with difficulties. They are the way. Right. So for, for to start to deconstruct the patterns to go, am I taking action? I shouldn't be taking. Am I, take, am I not taking action? I should be taking. Am I taking the wrong action? Rather than pushing harder rather than persisting in something that doesn't work is right. a key ability to transform your difficulty. And that's not, again, it's not the, for the, for those of you who are, have um, chronic pain, it's not to, to in any way deny the pain It's to say, it's not the pain that this, what we're talking about, it, that's real. It's how do you relate to it? What's your relationship to it? What's the rule in your head about the relationship when you can do different things to have that impact in a positive way? I, I agree. Patterns are incredibly uh, compelling. In fact, if you think of what, what constitutes a game, it's a set of preordained, if you like, or pre-contracted rules mm -hmm. that prevent closure or uh, 
gratification that you can overcome with skill by learning the patterns. And I mean, we know how popular games are from card games to board games. So it's very much uh, a brain fodder, really. Um, now, you also say the road to- so, so, so to add to that, a game is a pattern of interactions with yes. rules, moves, counter moves that are required to win, right? And every game has threats, deceptions, and rewards. Right. Some, to be clear though, some games are not about winning and losing, some games about meaning. And that's when you can play the metagame, the larger game of games. Right. Um, you say that the road to hell is, is paid by mishandled interactions that cost you time, money, and impact. Please right. elaborate on that, expand if you would. Um, well, it, it is critical to recognize that your attempted solutions, your first order solutions, your interactions, all the examples that I've given were attempted solutions. They were mishandled interactions. When you, as a parent, lecture your child, that's a mishandled interaction. When you, as a couple, one person um, gets angry and the other person gets quiet, and the quieter that person gets, the angry the other person. That dynamic, in that case, it's the two interaction are mishandling the interaction. You actually have to do a 180. You have to reduce the attempted solution. You have to find a different alternative to, to doing that. Those are all mishandled interactions. When the vice president of quality just presented the... Um, um, the what she was going to gain, what the company is going to gain. It was mishandling an uh, understanding of the game board that the CEO was actually making the decisions on. Right. And so, to the degree that you, uh, to the degree that you can recognize, I miss the road to hell is paved with mishandled interactions. If I transform the interactions, if I transform the rules in my head, mm -hmm. then. I begin to change the game. And, you know, I part of, in my book, I part, do what others say can't be done. Partly what I, I talk about is the sense-making guidance system. You have a guidance. We all have guidance systems. You and I have guidance systems in our brain that's made up of three factors, prediction, novelty, and meaning. And it's the intersection of prediction, novelty, and meaning that generates, that guides us. And so, Every conversation when you're having and that you are up leveling or upgrading or raising your the insights that you have about the game board that you're playing is you're you're raising your guidance system. And the, the what I'm trying to do is to advance civilization by raising the guidance systems everyone is using to play to, to have more meaningful, impactful, influential lives. And that can, that can, in the context of like what we're talking about here, where people are um, suffering, so it's reducing their suffering to 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 do take some actions that can reduce the stress. The more you know, the the more you can make yourself feel safe, the more the brain, the parasympathetic system, the vagal nerve, reduces the threat. The more the calmer you are, the more resourceful, the more at ease your body is. And if you can do it for 30 seconds, 
or a minute or five minutes and appreciate that, it builds in some more neural circuits to be able to do that. In a, and, and you know, while you're, as you said in the beginning, while you're taking, do, do, taking, you're following the appropriate medical guidance that you received that you're listening to for your- Stephen, we, we, we're running out of time. The book is Do What Others Say Can't Be Done, Play the Meta Game. It's available on Amazon, I understand. Um, Stephen, it's been wonderful having you with us uh, today. Uh, most interesting field you're in. Um, I, I, I'm really intrigued by your work and I thank you once again for coming. Um, this is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell from Healthscape, signing off. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.